What's up, South Florida sports fans, and welcome to the final June episode of Valley Sports Miami Miked Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And I'm very excited to transition this podcast from Heat and Panthers talk as they made their incredible runs toward the finals, toward a team that is just as red hot as they were in the postseason. Yes, I am talking about your Miami Marlins who have been one of the best teams in baseball during June and really one of the best teams in baseball all season long. Fifth best record in the league, second best in the National League. Now 14 games over 500. And we're going to get into all of it as Miami Miked Up is now your premier destination for Miami Marlins baseball in podcast form. Very excited to have June Lee from ESPN on for the second time today. He was on with us last year. We'll dive into the Marlins, the Braves, the Mets, Shohei Otani, and more on this episode. So enjoy today's episode of Miami Miked Up. And I just sort of realized that it's the last episode of June with June Lee. Okay, anyway, enjoy. And now back for his second episode on Miami Miked Up. I am... So pleased to welcome in June Lee, a staff writer for ESPN, a cast member on Around the Horn, guest on SportsCenter. Literally, just just go to ESPN, find June Lee. He's everywhere. Uh, June, thank you for gracing us with your presence for a second time on oh, Miami Mike Dub. Thank you so much for having me on, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Of course, man. Uh, very happy to have you here and a good time to have you on for a Miami Marlins baseball podcast. Um, but before we get into baseball, before we get into your work, I want to ask you, what is something recently outside of work, outside of baseball that's brought you joy? Oh, man. I mean, I feel like everyone's watching the bear right now. Uh, the Everyone except know, for me. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So uh, there's an episode where one of the characters is scream singing Taylor Swift's <gasps> in the car. And it's just like one of the most delightful things I've seen on camera over the well, course of the last like couple of years. If I wasn't already excited to start the bear, I, we've been talking about it in this household for a while of like we were behind because we didn't watch it right when season one came out. And so now with season two, I think it's really the motivation to like, all right, we got to catch up. Uh, that is an extra motivation now for me. So, so sure like a month it. ago, I had not seen any of it. And right. my girlfriend had basically for months and months and months been, been like, you haven't watched the bear. Why aren't mm -hmm. you watching the bear? You should watch the bear. And I was just like, uh, and I, I kind of have this like dumb brain where if everyone's telling me to do something, I kind Same. of just like really, I really don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I find we kind of got to a point where like all the TV shows that we want to watch are ended. And I was just like, uh, I guess we can watch this now. And then I burned through the, we burned through the first season in like a week. And then well, we watched the second season in three days. So it's great. It's delightful. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, just did the same thing with succession where everybody had started oh, succession okay. early on that's a lot oh it was it was emotionally draining because what happened was we quite literally with about i want to say six weeks to go in the final season went all right let's start this because we don't really care we won't get you know spoiled whatever and then we started catching up at a good enough rate <laughs> that with a week to go we had about a season and a half to two seasons left and we caught in a weekend and you'll appreciate the weekend after game six of the heat Celtics series uh. on Friday night, 
I basically shut myself in my house or it was a Saturday night, Saturday night. Yeah. Saturday night. I shut myself in my house for all of Sunday and, and turned off. Like I deleted Twitter. I deleted TikTok. I deleted Instagram to avoid spoilers because the finale was on Sunday night, but we watched all the way through from Sunday to Monday night and finished the finale just minutes before game seven started uh, in Boston. And it was like, <laughs> it was like nearly two seasons of succession in the span of a couple of days. And it was so emotionally exhausting that I knew no matter what happens in this heat game, I won't have even recovered from the end of succession. So it's fine. I'll be numb. And it, it really was a perfect, a perfect way to sort of pregame game seven. Dude, that just like, seems like a lot. It to was put on yourself. Yeah, it was. It was. I did it. I did it because I couldn't handle the emotional uh, collapse that was going to happen if the Heat did blow a 3-0 lead to the Boston Celtics. And so I think I was just like, all right, I'll make myself emotionally numb by watching all of these episodes of Succession. So Dude, that, that, that series was just so emotionally draining it as was, a whole in general. Well, we took we took like a good hour and a half break after, you know, the moment that sort of changes the trajectory of everybody's life in the early parts of season four. Uh, and so we took a good hour and a half to kind of just recover from that, have some lunch, you know, a little bit of soup, and just sort of relax. Uh, you know what part of it is too with that series is yeah. that we got to a point where the Nuggets were just rolling mm -hmm. and the Celtics were coming back. And I just had this thing as a Celtics fan where I was just like, I think the series actually doesn't matter because I think the Nuggets are just gonna steamroll over everyone. Uh -huh. So I'm just going through this emotional roller coaster right now, and it really just existentially. <laughs> number one doesn't matter, but number two, like within the context of the right. NBA, extremely, extremely doesn't matter because I think Nikola Jokic is just gonna steamroll over anyone. Well, and you were right. You were right on that point. But I think what it was is, it, it, you know, for Celtics fans, they could at least do that. For Heat fans, once there was a 3-0 lead, it was more, I had no, I did not care. I said to everyone that I knew, I was like, if they just get to the finals, just don't blow this lead because the the pride of blowing the 3-0 lead would have been the bigger issue than actually losing and in the, the finals. Celtics. Yeah, and to the Celtics specifically, and then to have that relate back to the Red Sox. It would have been, I was, a back in, in the early 2000s, you know, my dad grew up in New York, and so I was like a Yankees and Marlins fan. And so obviously in 2003, I was still rooting for the Marlins, but it was one of those things where in 04, like that did impact me. I was sad when the Yankees blew a 3-0 lead to the Red Sox. And so if I was going to have to go through those emotions again, 19 years later with the same Boston fan base, I just wasn't going to be able to handle it. Dude, you should have seen some of my group chats with my friend from high school. In <laughs> 2004, we just kept sending each other highlights and was right. just like, this is it. It's happening. It's happening Let's do again. It. And we're just reliving the nostalgia of like Mark Bellhorn and oh my Curtis Lascanic. And it was it was uh it was a nice time to at least like relive that period to have a culturally relevant moment to be like, Hey guys, remember how awesome that was? Yeah, at least and how insufferable in all of us Boston sports fans are. Yeah. Well it was it was fun. Um and it was a great ride. And I, I had promised myself I, I wasn't gonna you know, mention the Heat beating the Celtics to you because I want it to be nice. Uh, but I am going to bring up the Marlins sweeping the Red Sox <laughs> this week because that actually matters toward this conversation. Uh, the Marlins are 48 and 34. They're 14 games over 500 for the first time in 20 years. It's only the third time in franchise history where they've been 14 games over. 
And the other two years are 1997 and 2003. They won the World Series both years. There's a whole bunch more that we could list off and get into. But June, you watched the Marlins a bunch this week. Uh, I want just your general thoughts about this team. Do you think they could be a playoff team as we're sitting here halfway through this season and they're 14 games over? What do you like about the Marlins and, and what are your general thoughts? I think if the Marlins are completely healthy, then they look like a playoff team. But it's kind of a, the the type of roster where you know one more pitcher gets injured, two hitters get injured, and like yeah. I think the whole thing might completely fall apart. But you look at the Marlins roster right now, like Luis Arise, like obviously hitting close to four hundred. It's down to three ninety two right now, but like mm-hmm. he's having a season for the ages. But then you've got a bunch of guys who have been on the Marlins for a couple of years now and have kind of been under the radar in terms of the national baseball consciousness. I guess still are just because the Marlins are the Marlins. But right. you know, John Birdie is a guy who has been a contributor in Miami for a while now. Yeah. Uh, has has been a guy who's been able to steal bases and hit. I mean, I Joey Wendell is a guy even before he got to Miami uh, was a consistent hitter on a night to night basis. Uh, I love Jazz Chisholm. I hope he stays healthy. Right. Um, but when he's healthy, he's such a dynamic player. And you know, he, transitioning to center field this year, it has been a pretty good move in terms of you look at the analytics, the defensive run saves that he's had. Uh, he's been a, uh, his skill set has, has translated well over there. And it, it is fascinating too. Like obviously Sandy Alcantara was, was unbelievable last year. And everyone's talking about how he's been not unbelievable this year, but I mean, the rest of that rotation too, has had a bunch of good guys between Jesus Lazardo, like a guy who was a top prospect coming up with Oakland coming mm-hmm. over and, you know, putting together a really strong season this year. Braxton Garrett has had a good year. Great. Uh, and then obviously Yuri Perez has been awesome. I mean, I, even like I was watching AJ Puck last night, close out the, the game. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's not Andrew Miller, but he's like, he has the same profile. Andrew, Andrew Miller like, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> where he's like six foot seven and has this like really lanky windup where he throws, you know, pretty hard and uh, is coming into close. And it's just like, he's, I don't think the stuff is necessarily as good as Andrew Miller was in his prime, but uh, it's a guy where it's just like, Hey, this actually, I think might work out as a reliever in the long term. And so you look at just a bunch of these pieces, they've just built up the depth, the mid tier of that roster so well, where all of that stuff adds up. I mean, you look at the Tampa Rays, like before they got Wander Franco, before they had that superstar bat in the middle of that, lineup they were basically riding off of depth on their roster and so uh, i think that you're kind of seeing something similar with the marlins this year where it's like you don't necessarily have that like super duper star Mm -hmm. but everyone kind of one through nine is pretty good at least above replacement level uh and and so when you have that on a roster in, in the modern game it's kind of enough to do well i love the way that that you phrase that with their depth because it does feel like for the first time in years that is an advantage for the Marlins. It is something where you can look at their roster and go, okay, there really are legitimately nine or 10 major league hitters, even if they're just average major league hitters, where let's be realistic. For the last number of years, you've had two or three guys in that lineup who were good, and then if they got hurt, you know, if Jazz had missed this much time last season, like he did, the team completely fell off, right? But this year with, you know, Luis Arias at the top of the order with Jorge Soler playing as well as he has and, and being a power bat for them. And you look at everybody else just sort of playing their role. It has been really great. You got to give Kim Ang some credit for for the roster that they've put together um, and, and being able to feel like they have that level of depth. Um, let's talk about Luis Arias for a second, because 
I think the thing that has made this season so special is not just, okay, someone chasing 400 for the first time in, in forever, but a massive trade this offseason where you're giving away Pablo Lopez, where Sandy and Pablo had been your one-two punch. You're taking advantage of the depth of your pitching rotation and saying, all right, we're going to go get this guy who other people seemingly didn't value all that highly. Um, the Twins clearly themselves didn't value him all that highly. And now, in a time where batting average is not really a hot commodity, here's Luis Arias setting the tone for this team. H- how much fun has it been, in in your view, to watch Luis Arias hit this season? One of the things that I've seen change in baseball over the course of the last couple of years is that the way that a lot of people judge the quality of a player is you go to the baseball savant stat cast page mm-hmm. and you see how many circles are red and if you go to Luis arises baseball stat cast page three of them are red like right. his hard hit percentage is in the third percentile the max exit velocity is in the ninth percentile and he's still three and a half wins above replacement and i think this ties in to a larger trend that savvy baseball analytics minded people that I trust around the sport have been talking to me about over the course of the last year or so where they looked at the Cleveland Guardians last season Mm. who were able to get to the postseason without having a ton of power without relying on exit velocity and they were like this is kind of the way that the game is going to swing back over the course of the next five years where you have the market inefficiency, the way that teams are not evaluating guys anymore, that you can get these kind of guys on the cheap is our guys like Luis Arias, who was incredibly valuable for Minnesota. And Minnesota is a pretty analytically savvy team yeah. as well. Um, they've valued him pretty highly. And, you know, I think people were surprised that much at how much the Marlins gave up in order to, to get Arias. And I think that it's been totally worth it just because, mm-hmm. you know, it seemed like a lot of the time, but he's still exceeded any expectations you could have had. And so I- I'm really curious to see how his success, seeing how him piling up wins above replacement is going to at least wake teams up to the fact that, hey, obviously scoring runs by the home run is the most efficient way to do that. But there's this gap between if if the average guy hitting 240 is now considered acceptable right. considered hitting you know t- 230 as something that's fine you know hitting 260 now is considered really good uh there's this if it market inefficiency where like if you're gonna make room for a bunch of guys who are hitting 190 where i feel like there's more guys who are playing regularly hitting below the mendoza line now than there ever has been in the last right. couple of decades there's got to be a place for the guy who hits like 350 that hasn't really had to spawn the game over the course of the last five years. And uh, I, I think that Arise is going to wake people up to the fact that there's going to be room for these guys still, even if they don't hit the ball that hard. If you place the ball well, if you just get on base, yep. getting on base a lot is going to be valuable and more valuable than a guy who's hitting 180 and might hit a homer, you know, every every couple of times out uh, up at the plate. Well, and it's about the diversity in the lineup, right? Because, you know, Jorge Soler is still that guy who's only going to hit, you know, so high in batting average, but he'll hit for power. But if you have someone like Luis Rise ahead of him in the order, that's only beneficial to your team. Um, you know, it is it is fun to, to watch this guy be able to do it this way. And, you know, the Marlins team has sort of followed suit 
you know, they scored the other night. It was 10 runs on 19 hits, and I think 17 of them were singles. Like, it was one of the most amazing spreads. And, you know, of course, at the same time, they're going to ground into potentially a, a major league record amount of double plays because they are trying to hit so many singles, and Luis Arias is doing it himself sometimes, grounding into double plays. But that's sort of the give and take on, on being a team like this. You mentioned Yuri Perez earlier, and... Um, obviously he, like many of these young phenoms faces a dilemma as a team sort of goes on a playoff chase here. And that's always the dilemma of, do you shut down a young ace in the making, um, as you approach the playoffs to sort of limit innings? We've seen reports from Craig Mish that the Marlins are at the very least considering doing that with Yuri Perez or managing his innings throughout sort of just looking for your mentality when it comes to, Hey, this team is potentially poised to make some type of playoff run or at least make it to the playoffs, you know, excluding the 2020 season for the first time in 20 years. Um, what's your mindset when it comes to managing young arms like Yuri Perez? I think it's cautious, but I think I'm of the mindset now where it's worth pushing guys to see how far they can go. Because I think back to when all of this stuff started in terms of managing the arms of young innings and Steven Strasburg was the guy was the that first. came to mind where mm -hmm. the team was just like, Oh, let's shut him down. Like, even if the team is doing well and Steven Strasburg is in his you know early, early to mid thirties now and hasn't really been a thing for a couple of years. He like you can be down. as cautious as you, yeah, you can be as cautious as you want with all of this, but Sometimes a guy's body is just a guy's body, you know, with Chris Sale, for example, like we've seen that of the course last couple of seasons where he's just going to get injured. And so uh, there's obviously like a, a level where it's just like, you're not, you don't want to push this guy to throw 150 innings uh, like they do in Koshen in Japan for these high school kids or something, or like even right. in the college world series, like there's just too much money at stake for that. And it's a different set of uh, variables when it's a college kid who's not going to play in the pros and, uh, is just trying to get a team to win the college world series. It's like, it's a totally different set of, of circumstances. I think with a guy like Yuri, I mean, it's kind of unscientific too. Like we've, we've seen the talks about, you know, building up arms with plyo balls, like 15 years ago when Trevor Bauer was the first guy to kind of do that at UCLA, everyone was just like, Oh, he's going to kill his arm because he's throwing these like weighted balls. And now, you know, the teams that are coached at the little league level playing at a high level are also throwing ply balls. Like, yep. you know, eight-year-old kids are throwing ply balls now. And so, you know, the conventional wisdom changes so regularly. And I think part of it is like the way that a guy's arm is built, is it's not just a matter of resting them once they get to the major leagues when they're 21, 22, 23. Correct. It's often like a lifelong process like you know as we can say as much as we want about trevor bauer and his you know legal circumstances and uh you know domestic violence and him playing in japan but you know he was right about fly yeah, balls at least and that. the fact that and 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 uh he never got injured like when he was in the majors and so there's a reason why more guys are trading with them now and i think i think if you're a pitcher who's not trading with them you're you know so behind the curve i, I would imagine that most guys are at this point mm -hmm. I think that this kind of thing, it's like it's it's a lifelong thing that's hard to kind of fix at 21, 22, 23 it has you know, stuff to do with mechanics. It's not a scientific process yep. uh, as much as we like want to try to break it down to be. And so uh, I'm always of the of the of the belief that, you know, listen to the guy, look at the way that the angels that managed Shoei Otani. It's been a mm -hmm. conversation between him and his manager constantly, like listen to the guy, let the guy believe his body and just see where it goes from there. 
I couldn't agree with you more. And the unscientific nature of it is is such a key here where it's like, you know, no matter how you manage a guy, his body could break down. The Marlins are experiencing that themselves with Sixto Sanchez. They managed him very well. They didn't push him. He His only season where he pitched for them was in a 60-game season. He didn't even make that many starts. And he hasn't been able to throw a ball basically since. His shoulder's just been a nightmare. And so sometimes that happens. Sometimes bodies break down. And I think, you know, obviously... It, it's it's not worth overworking a kid to the point where it's obvious that you're pushing him to a point that is unreasonable. But where I totally agree with you is is listen to the player, listen to his body, um, and you sort of approach it from there. You know, Yuri Perez sits right now at just under 50 innings this season. We'll see what the cap is for him going into a potential postseason run. Um, and speaking of postseason run, this will be my last specifically Marlins-related question before we take a look at the rest of Major League Baseball. About a month out right now from the MLB trade deadline. Obviously, the Marlins are a team that if they are sitting in the same sort of position a month from now as a contender, if July treats them as well as June has, they're going to be a team that's probably a buyer at the deadline in some capacity. If you were the Marlins and you could target one player across Major League Baseball, let's exclude Shohei Otani because it's unrealistic, but one player across Major League Baseball who could be available at the trade deadline, who would you choose for the Miami Marlins? One of the starting pitchers. I mean, that's that's kind of yeah. pop out. But, you know, between Giolitos, Shane Bieber, Eduardo Rodriguez, Dylan Cease, mm. you know, Lance Lynn, someone, Alex Cobb, someone in that group. Sure. I think would make a lot of sense. Someone who uh, is able to bring a little bit more depth to that rotation. You know, if Sandy figures it out, you have Yuri, Sandy, and another guy. It's a pretty good playoff rotation uh you don't even necessarily need a number one like if you go out and get a number two for this year next year you know two years from now like i think that that's a pretty good place for the marlins to be um and i think it's going to be curious to see how they approach this offseason especially considering how they finished out the season because there's interesting pieces here and they've been building up the farm system uh and it's we're getting closer to the time where you're going to see some of the fruits of the farm over the course of the last couple of years start to make it to the major leagues. And, you know, between Yuri and, you know, Arias and we'll see with Sandy, I guess, like they've got a good foundation there. Yeah. Um, and I'm always very curious to see how Miami shows up for the Marlins when they're actually good, because uh -huh. I know how terrible of a history. I've talked to Billy Gill enough to know how <laughs> terrible of a history that city has with baseball mm. and the trust issues that it has with that team. And so, and, and I know that base Miami is a city that cares much more about sports than kind of the national perception might be on the surface. And so mm. I think you combine all those things. There's a really like, it's a very interesting situation just because of the history of the Marlins and also uh, the fact that they're playing way better than anyone could have possibly expected. Yeah, I mean, that part is so fun. You got to give also Skip Schumacher, it's the first time I mentioned him today, give him a ton of credit because Sandy and Jazz and everyone around this team keep talking about the type of of sort of, you know, we hate to do, <laughs> hate to make it the culture chatter uh, once again, but the type of culture that he's creating in that locker room. I, I was talking with Jesus Lazardo the other day about it, and he was saying how 
you know, they're having more fun, but also there's a greater sense of accountability than there's been in years past and, and they feel it. And there seems to be a really great thing going on in that clubhouse as well that that makes this, you know, fun. Hopefully, you know, Sandy's last start was a solid one. Seems like, you know, hopefully maybe he can get on that right track. And I agree with you. Adding one more starter would be great even just to be able to help limit Yuri Perez's innings and actually get him to the postseason. When you have guys like Braxton Garrett and Jesus Lizardo, if these guys can make it through the rest of the season, that certainly helps. But let's move on now to the Marlins opponent this weekend. A huge series coming up. Who would have thought here in, at the end of June that a big series with the Atlanta Braves in some capacity where the Braves right now arguably have the best offense in baseball. They're the best team in the National League. My question to you simply is just how great are the Atlanta Braves right now? Unbelievable. I mean, you look at <laughs> Ronald Acuna Jr. and you just you just start there. Yeah, uh, it's him putting together. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's 36 stolen bases to this mm. point and That's he's crazy, at 330. Man. He's got almost five wins above replacement like Sean Murphy. Uh, he's having a great season for mm-hmm. them. Uh, Ozzie Albies. I mean, like their lineup goes on and on and on. And I can't imagine what it's like to be a starting pitcher looking at the film for this lineup, going through the advanced analytics and just being like, ah, got to try my best tonight. Sure, right, right. That's all you can do with this team. And then you look at the rotation, like Max Fried is a guy who I think has kind of been under-talked about in terms of just being one of the better pitchers in baseball over the course of the last couple of seasons. Yeah. Um, you know, he he's, had, he's dealt with his injury issues. But, but beyond that, right, Spencer Strider has continued to be good. And Bryce Elder has been Tremendous. their best pitcher this season and it feels like that with the Braves right now where you know one year Max Freed is the ace uh and he was an ace for a lot of the last year too but then last year Spencer Strider kind of shows up and then Bryce Elder shows up this year and it's just like how many guys does this team have you know it's they've really just amazing. built up a foundation and then on top of that when you think about the long-term prognosis for this team with the contract that Acuna has and the contract that Albies has which they're so ridiculously underpaid. Crazy. Uh, due to a lot of circumstances that uh, we don't have to go into today. Yeah, but we, we could do a whole other episode on that. Right. But when you look at that as just from like a business team building standpoint, you're in a great spot. Oh mm-hmm. my God. This is like a, with a contract like that for Cunha and Albies, like this is a, you might be in a another six year window here as long as you play your cards right. Because if someone leaves, you have enough money still to go out and get someone on the open market. So uh, it's just it's just like a, it's a terrifying situation. It is. It is, it is for everybody else, in the, everybody else in the NL East, that's for sure. Uh, especially when you're a team like the Marlins sort of trying to work in those margins. And then you see those contracts that exist for their core and then Atlanta's ability to go out and spend as well. Um, when we talk about spending... I think the first thing that comes to mind right now is the New York Mets. Uh, Steve Cohen had a press conference this week where he dropped a whole bunch of fun little nuggets. Um, I know you were covering that press conference. Um, I saw some of some of the quotes uh, out there on your Twitter. Um, Generally, what's wrong with the Mets? I think it's a whole variety of things. I think it's this team is built on a foundation of players that is getting older. This is the oldest roster in Major League Baseball. And between Starling Marte and Mark Hanna and Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, a lot of the guys are underperforming. And then on top of that, you look at the rotation. It hasn't been healthy all season. And this is a rotation built on guys who have had injury issues between, you know, 
obviously Verlander was out for the first month of the season. Uh, Carlos Carrasco was out for two months. Jose Quintana is supposed to come back this weekend. They haven't had their entire rotation and put them in a really, really deep hole out of the gate. And then on top of that, uh, this is a lineup that just isn't hitting as well as it did last year. It was a top six offense this last season. I think it's about 15th this year. And then, you know, the bullpen hasn't been good as well when you consider in that Edwin Diaz is just not there anymore. Like David Robertson and Adam Adovino are your setup guys. Like that's a great situation. But when Robertson's your closer, you kind of take away all the depth that you built up in that bullpen. So it's just a bunch of guys have gotten injured. It's a team that's a little bit older, built on injuries like Francisco Lindor. You know, he's been good in the field. He's the leader in wins whoever plays for this team, but he's hitting 220 and he's not the Francisco Lindor that, we saw in the last three years of Cleveland where he was hitting 30 homers a year for three start seasons. Uh, Brandon Nimmo has been one of their most more consistent players, but even Pete Alonso, he was hitting, you know, 260 a month ago. His, you know, he gets injured. His average is down to 220 right now, Man. and he's hit 24 homers. But, you know, that core of that lineup just isn't hitting. Jeff McNeil is the batting champion last year. He's hitting 255 right now. So it's a group where just a lot of guys have taken a step back. And yeah. in the aggregate, when six of the nine guys in the lineup take a step back, it's going to have a massive effect on the, on the results of the team. Between a step back and injuries, they've just, they've sort of been, you know, what everybody makes fun of the Mets for being, which is just Metsing all over the place. Uh, I, I feel bad for them in, in a capacity, but yet, no, no, I don't. Um, moving moving toward <laughs> uh, other parts of Major League Baseball outside of the NL East, um, the first thing and the first name that I have to mention is obviously Shohei Otani. It's funny because I remember having a conversation with you last year about Shohei Otani, his greatness, how incredible he was, what a big star he was. And then in the year's time since we've spoken, he's only done more and more impressive things, become more and more famous, become more and more excellent at what he does. And right now, you can make an argument that if he was just on either side of the ball, he should just get MVP votes. Like if he was just a pitcher, that that pitcher not only should win the Cy Young, but get MVP votes. And then the hitter that he is should get MVP votes. Shohei Otani's excellence. What can you say about it that, you know, helps people put into perspective how incredible he truly is? I was talking to an executive at Major League Baseball for a story that I'm working on about Otani and his marketing value, especially when it factors into his next contract. Mm. And MLB is thinking about the global future of the game right now. Like we've been talking about the last decade about MLB needs to get more young fans in America. They've kind of not abandoned that thought process, but they've shifted their perspective in thinking about how they can grow their audience. They view the biggest target audience now as the international market. That's why they're playing so many games in Europe. That's why they're going to mm-hmm. play games in Korea next year. You know, Taiwan has a huge baseball market. Japan obviously has a huge baseball market. And when they're thinking about the global expansion of the game, you know, having a blackout free streaming service that anyone in the world can watch a game on MLB TV in the future. And they're thinking about how to, make baseball bigger than it is right now. An executive told me Shoyo Tani is the entire plan in terms hmm. of marketing the future of the game. And it's because they see him as a generational, actually generational actually is probably selling him short. Right. A once in a century type of athlete where I think back to Babe Ruth in the 1910s, not that I was alive, but <laughs> everything I've read about Babe Ruth in the 1910s, 
he was the first American celebrity in many ways, in terms of being this kind of recognizable face who was endorsing everything from baseball bats to hot dogs to underwear. And the way that MLB views Otani as a potential marketing force for the game, they're thinking about him not in the context of just America and how they've marketed baseball players in the past. They're thinking about guys like Lionel Messi, who, wow, you don't need to hear him speak a, a, a lick of English or anything at all, really, right. to understand why he's so incredible. You just watch the highlights and it's like, oh my God, right? You play with him on FIFA and it's like, oh my God. Right. All of those things tied together are how they're thinking about Otani as a potential force for change in Major League Baseball. And it's not just the league. It's, you know, I've had a conversation with folks over at New Balance where they're talking about his signature sneaker that's coming and all that stuff. And the way they think about it is Otani is the force to grow baseball in America and around the world. And that's going to help bring more people to MLB. And so that's the way that people are thinking about Otani now. It's not just thinking about how he's had this change in the way that we think is what we think is possible for baseball players in America. It is, widen the global expansion ambitions of MLB because they always have always wanted to obviously do this. Right. Uh, all the leagues in, in America are doing it right now. But now they have a guy where it's just like, here he is. Look how special he is. And you don't even need to hear him talk to know how special he is. It's unbelievable to really think about when you put into perspective that we all talked about, oh, man, this guy could be sort of like Babe Ruth. Right. Like when he was coming into the league, it's like, oh, a pitcher and a hitter, Babe Ruth, ha ha. And he's come in and just shattered those expectations. And to me, it's like it's not even an arguable thing. Shohei Otani is the greatest baseball player who's ever lived. Like he just is at this point. And there's not really more left to prove to me to be able to say this is the greatest athlete baseball's ever seen. You know, I know Bo Jackson played baseball, but this is the greatest athlete that baseball has ever seen. And it excites me to think that he can be this spark for baseball having not only potentially a, a resurgence in popularity here in America, but this expansion worldwide. You know, when you talk about the reach of baseball, um, I know your most recent piece on ESPN.com, um, you wrote about, it's the headline, quote, the Japanese Juan Soto, Masataka Yoshida has been a hit. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about that piece and what went into it, um, because I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I just wanted to give the folks a bit of the background of, of what you dove into for ESPN.com. Yeah. So I, I had a conversation with Adam Jones, uh, the former Orioles outfielder, uh, Team USA, World Baseball Classic superstar. And he's living in Barcelona, by the way, right now. Really? Which is, yeah. Which is crazy. I did not know that he was living in Spain, and <laughs> that's where he called me from. Um, but we were just talking about him because he played with Yoshida when he was in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, and he kind of saw immediately, like, oh, this guy is going about things differently than most players here. Like, he was paying attention not just to Mike Trout on the television, but he was paying attention to all the middle relievers and asking questions about, oh, how does this guy's stuff look? And he was just asking questions where he had this level of curiosity about just the depth of the league. And when you combine that with his work ethic, the way he approached hitting, I mean, he was a bit of a hitting savant in Japan and players would come to him to 
ask for help in fixing their swings. Like he was kind of like a pseudo hitting coach over there. When you combine all those things, Adam Jones is just like, oh, this guy is going to be in the major leagues. Like he called him the Japanese Juan Soto, as it says in the headline. Right. Because he saw the approach, you know, the way that he didn't swing at balls, the way that he was able to kind of methodically go the other way and drive, drive you know, baseballs, you know, left to right with power, despite, you know, he's listed at five, nine, he's not five, nine, like I'm five, seven. And he, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm taller than him. So <laughs> when you kind of see that and a guy who's of that stature and he's hitting the ball the way that he does, mm-hmm. it's just something that you just don't see on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I think that Hein Bloom got a lot of crap from, baseball fans online especially because of people being like oh here why are you giving this like japanese hitter you we've never heard of all this money but he's turned out to be one of his best signings and yep. i mean one of the things that, that that does stand out to me is like as good as as good of a hitter as he has been um his wins above replacement is not necessarily as high as you would expect just because uh he's definitely not a good fielding outfielder <laughs> like he's hitting 294 367 460 he's like an offensive force at the right. plate but he's got less than a win above replacement because he's a below average left fielder potentially significantly below average <laughs> which you can like kind of hide at Fenway Park but yeah they've done you know, it also before. 81 games on the road yeah so um you know he he's just he's just been a hit with I think Red Sox fans in general um because you look at a guy that you know hits the ball the other way yep. he's able to hit for power it's it's something that I think most teams would would probably want to have He's been terrific, um, and everyone should go check out the full piece on ESPN.com. Um, I'm going to give you one last question here. I'm going to throw two baseball topics at you, but if you don't want to cover either of those, you can pick one of your choosing. I've got Ellie De La Cruz and the Cincinnati Reds. I've got the Oakland A's just as a whole. They were historically bad. Then they went on a win streak. There's a reverse boycott. Now they had a perfect game against them. A million things going on there. Or fill in the blank. What do you What do you want to tackle to close out this episode of Miami Miked Up? Oh, let's talk about Ellie De La Cruz. Let's do it's it. Get <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Reds have been rebuilding for what it seems like a decade and a half now, it's crazy. and it just hasn't necessarily manifested itself. And we're we're starting to see guys like Jonathan India, who won the Rookie of the Year a couple of years ago. And you know, Hunter Green was on Sports Illustrated. I mean, I spent a week with him when he was in high school. Like it was one of the most hype baseball prospects we've seen over the course of the last couple of decades. And then Ali Dale Cruz shows up kind of out of nowhere last year, where mm-hmm. people, you know, he was obviously a super raw, talented guy, but you know, you get a lot of those guys in the minor leagues and you just never know what happens. Uh and he has an explosive year last year, basically jumps up all the prospect rankings, and then comes up this year, and he basically looks like an all-star like right yep. out of the gate. I mean, it's kind of part of a trend that we see in baseball right now where teams are calling guys at like 19, 20, 21 years old, and they're good immediately. And that's just yep. a, such a big departure from the way that teams approach prospect development two decades ago. I think that Harper and trout were kind of the beginning of this where they Mm -hmm. were the first guys who were called up like 21 22 i mean i remember when i was a kid growing up like you would see prospects come up at 25 26 spend years and years kind of toiling in the minor leagues and now it's totally different and uh, it's changed the way that i think teams view franchise building the way that 
uh, you know, guys in their 30s now or early 30s are kind of viewed as past their prime when that was viewed as the prime in the past. And so um, and, and the way that you know, teams kind of save money on guys, yep. you know, try to offer them pre-arbitration contracts. And so I, I, I'm excited about the Reds just because having a guy like that, that's a potential franchise changer. Having a oh, guy yeah. that's that dynamic, um, not just at the plate, but also in the field as well. And so. Uh, I'm just excited. It's like we just have this like exciting influx of young players in the game right now, and I think we've had that over the course of the last three years. But now I, I read something this morning where MLB TV ratings are up 25 percent this year, despite the fact that the Yankees haven't had Aaron Judge and the Mets have sucked and the Red Sox have sucked, relatively speaking. Right. Uh, despite the big market teams like not having the ratings, like with, with the rule changes and the kind of influx and parity uh, of the game right now, the influx of young talent. It's an exciting time to be a baseball fan just because we're seeing this like kind of massive generational shift happen all at once. And uh, we're seeing a lot of young guys and and new teams kind of rise to the spotlight. It is a really fun time to be a baseball fan between that and the rule changes, which have been a hit, man. Like they've been great. The games have the been the best fun. thing Rob Manfred has done. Oh, by far. It's I was saying it, it was hilarious because this guy, I mean, Rob Manfred has made quite a few mistakes as commissioner. And yet his legacy is ultimately probably going to be based off the fact that this was a major change to baseball that is a huge success. The game is a lot better now to consume than it was last year or years before. And and They've done a really good job of, of making the game feel this way between that and guys like Shohei Otani, Ellie De La Cruz, you know, Ronald Acuna Jr., Jazz Chisholm Jr. As a, as, a, as a fun character within all of this. Like, it is a really great time to be a baseball fan. Um, and if you are a baseball fan, you should be following June Lee everywhere across all of his platforms. June Lee on Twitter. Um, go read everything he writes for ESPN.com. Watch him on Around the Horn. June, anything else to plug before I let you go here? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I got you covered. Follow me on TikTok. Yeah, follow, follow him me on, on TikTok. TikTok. June has a great yeah. TikTok. You should follow him on oh, TikTok. Thank you. Yeah, make, thank you. Make, I think make, uh, I think that's it though. All right, great. All right. Well, everybody, uh, enjoy this weekend series against the Atlanta Braves. All games on Bally Sports Florida. You can watch it on the Bally Sports app, Bally Sports Plus. You guys know the deal. Uh, I will be on the sticks at Bally Marlins tonight. As Brian Hoeing and them boys take on the Atlanta Braves. Looking forward to it. Thanks again, June. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Bally Sports Florida's Miami Miked Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And a special thank you to our national sponsor in Southeast Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealers or toyota.com today and take advantage of the amazing deals on their full line of vehicles. No matter your destination, Toyota goes with you. Toyota, let's go places.